glass of beer and talk about uh, all the things we can. So spare a minute of your time. Oh, it's time for. Stories from Alcatraz. Incarceration leads to jail fermentation. Did prohibition spark the founding of Alcatraz prison? How do you ferment in a jail cell? We explore these questions and more as we walk the bleak cells of Alcatraz. Explore its fabled grounds and walk in the footsteps of America's most notorious inmates. Board the boat with me. Grab a beer. It surpasses gold where we're going, as you'll find out. And let's go. The dark history of Alcatraz Prison, that bare rock looming menacingly above the frigid waters of the San Francisco Bay, permeates the collective American imagination. But what do we, myself included, really know about this infamous prison on the rock? Its history, reputation, and legacy remain shrouded and mystery for many. In the next, well, however long it takes, we will explore three things. First, throughout the episode, we will delve into the complicated history of Alcatraz, from its humble origins to its eventual closing in March of 1963. Sprinkled throughout, we'll explore the idea that prohibition directly influenced its transition into a federal prison as well as a brief dive into the methods of inmates to get drunk. This is a beer podcast, after all. The rocky shores of a small island come into focus as the boat nears our destination. There's a strange collective feeling of anticipation among the passengers on our ship, close to morbid curiosity, at least for me. We reach the shore. I look upwards from the slick, gray rocks up towards the crumbled, old, bleak buildings. A simple question surfaces in my mind. What is this place? Our story starts in 1775, when the Spanish explorer Juan Manuel de Ayala sailed to the San Francisco Bay. His task basically was to map the bay, for further use for the Spanish Empire. And one of the islands in the bay was essentially just a small, bare slate of rock. Nothing special, but it did have one distinguishing feature. It was full of birds, specifically pelicans. So Juan names the island Elcatraces, which usually is defined as meaning, you guessed it, pelican or strange bird. Over time, the word was Anglicanized and became Elkadras. Not exactly the origin story I or others might have pictured for a name kind of synonymous with suffering, but let's fast forward. When a presidential order issued by Millard Fillmore set aside the island for possible military use, this proved wise. Actually, coming from one of our worst presidents because the gold rush made San Francisco an economic hotspot. To protect the city and their freshly found wealth, the military built a citadel on the island in the early 1850s, planning to 
supply the fortress with 100 cannons, making it one of the, if not the most, heavily fortified military sites on the West Coast. The defensive necessity of the island diminished over time. The island never actually fired a shot. So in 1909, the army tore down the citadel as it was no longer necessary to build a new military prison. From 1909 to 1911, military prisoners on Alcatraz built the building, which would later famously be known as The Rock. Fast forward just a bit to 1933, the island was transferred to the U.S. Department of Justice for use by the Federal Bureau of Prisons, who then decided to build a maximum security, minimum privilege penitentiary to place America's most notorious inmates. And importantly, from their point of view, to show the public at large that the government was serious about stopping the rampant crime of the 1920s and 30s. I'm now in the prison. As I walk past the confined, dizzyingly identical cells, a sign catches my eye. It details the conversion of Alcatraz from a military prison into a federal prison in early 1934, notably immediately after the end of Prohibition. Sitting in my van, weeks after my visit to Alcatraz, I couldn't suppress the following question. Is there a connection between the opening of Alcatraz and the implementation of Prohibition? I start with a very dry pamphlet published in 1930 called Prohibition Enforcement, Its Effects on Courts and Prisons. For your sake, let me condense what I found. The pamphlet starts with an assertive statement. When national prohibition was adopted, it was never contemplated that our federal court and prosecuting agencies would have to be greatly expanded to handle the 70,000 criminals and civil cases a year made necessary by prohibition. That uh, voice actor was great. (laughs) After that quote, many stuffy facts, reports, and graphs, there is, I'll say, one definitive conclusion. If you exclude several wartime acts, the Selective Draft and Espionage Acts, as well as Prohibition cases, which were absolutely astronomical, there was no material increase in the number of criminal cases handled by the federal courts from 1920 to the publishing of this pamphlet in 1930. The pamphlet, towards the end, definitively concludes, Federal prisons are now filled to twice their normal capacity. If there had been no prisoners for violation of the Volstead Act, there would have been no increase in the number of federal prisoners since 1920. I followed up this research by looking into a much more recent article written by historian Michael Lerner, entitled Unintended Consequences of Prohibition. Quote, The growth of the illegal liquor trade under prohibition made criminals of millions of Americans. As the decade progressed, courtrooms and jails often overflowed and the legal system failed to keep up. End quote. I started with a question. Is there a 
concrete connection between the opening of Alcatraz, the federal prison, and the implementation of Prohibition. Directly, it's hard to say. But I will say, it's hard to look past the dramatic increase of demand for space prompted by the Volstead Act, and although Alcatraz opened a few short months after the repeal of Prohibition, Prohibition ended December 5th, 1933, it had to be a part of the public psyche at the time, at the start of that cold 1934 winter. Let's talk about life in the prison itself, once it opened. Perhaps not surprisingly, it was shitty. The Federal Bureau of Prisons viewed Alcatraz as, quote, the prison system's prison, a place where the most disruptive inmates could be sent to live under sparse conditions with few privileges in order to learn how to follow rules, at which point they could be transferred to other federal prisons to complete their sentences, end quote. And this is surprising to some people. Alcatraz was a small prison. The average population was around 267, which is, get this, less than 1% of the total federal prison population at the time. In the simplest of terms, a prisoner at Alcatraz only had four rights. These rights are food, clothing, shelter, and medical care. Absolutely everything else Everything else was a privilege that had to be earned. Every second of every day was structured and planned according to these limited rights and privileges. And don't just take my word for it. Let's hear from notorious Alcatraz inmate El Capone. During his tenure at a prison in Atlanta, he was easily able to bribe the guards and they would keep him relatively comfortable. However, when he transferred to Alcatraz, he found the conditions to be so harsh that he reportedly told the warden, quote, It looks like Alcatraz has got me licked. But in my opinion, perhaps the worst punishment you could receive would be solitary confinement for simple infractions, like not finishing your food, or simply, literally simply because a guard did not like you. You could be placed in a small, completely, utterly dark cell with no access to anything for up to 10 days at a time with a mandatory shower after a couple days, which even that wasn't a pleasure because Alcatraz, contrary to most other prisons, had hot showers, but these hot showers were scolding hot. So picture this. Let's slow down. You're in complete darkness for days or taken out for a quick shower that burns your skin and are forced back into the seclusion of your nightmarish cell. When you're taking a tour of the island, there's an option to go into one of these solitary confinement cells and close your eyes. And let me tell you, it's awful. It's something I would not wish upon anyone. And it would be more than enough to make someone want to produce their own alcohol. I open my eyes and quickly walk out of the confinement cell. What a nightmare, I think. I continue 
along the winding corridors and see a sign detailing uh, one of the inmates using glue to produce alcohol. And I quickly think to myself, after being in that terrible, terrible cell, man, if I were in this situation, I'd become a master glue fermenter myself as well. That sign planted the seed, really, for the following research. Now it's time for some fun. Time for some dare. Pruno, hooch, brew, juice, jump, raisin jack, chalk, buck, amongst other things. These are the many names for prison moonshine. It comes in a variety of, I'll say flavors, although taste is never really the primary motivation or goal in making any of these cleverly concocted brews. Unsurprisingly, it's made to get wasted, to get buzzed. Let's quickly dive into descriptions, brewing methods, and examples. It will be no surprise to you that alcoholic beverages are very prohibited in jails and prisons and have been for quite some time. Modernly, though, there are a few religious examples, but they're few and far between. Throughout the ages, inmates have invented a variety of cell room bootlegging techniques to help themselves and fellow inmates to get buzzed. I'll be using and quoting an article by Claire Sistanovich for the Marshall Project. Let's start simple. The very basic recipes call for oranges or mixed fruit with water and sugar. Your concoction then has to be left in a warm place for a couple days to ferment. Sounds pretty easy, right? Well, not if prisons know what is going on, which is the case in many places. Facilities often are clamping down on easily fermentable goods. Quote, in Los Angeles, for example, commissionaries no longer stock fruit. End quote. And so this is where I'm going to call it creative fermenting comes into play. <laughs> Those fermenting must then turn to, quote, less obvious ingredients for many recipes require ketchup, a surprising source of sugar, hand sanitizer has also been used. When the gel is mixed with salt, it separates into its primary ingredients, alcohol and glycerin, using a paper towel or a sock. <laughs> the glycerin gets filtered out and a potent alcohol remains, end quote. Take a second, this creativity this, this science is pretty remarkable. <laughs> it's fascinating. But however ingenious your fermentation method is, you still have to avoid detection by the guards. Quote, no matter how well guarded a batch might be, the fermentation process is a foul-smelling one. A prison nurse likened the stench to a baby poop. According to William Fonoff, warden at... McDougal Walker Correctional Institute in Connecticut, if an inmate so much as opens a bag of alcohol to check on its process, he or she risks detection. If you smelled it once, it would hit you like a brick wall, he says, even through a closed door. Fenoff claims that brewing incidents have dramatically declined since his early days as a corrections officer 23 years ago. He remembers... He remembers... <laughs> discovering a 25-gallon batch of alcohol. These days, when he does come across it, it's by the cupful. End quote. A quick disclaimer, before you get any ideas 
about brewing your own prison fermented beverage, I would not necessarily, or I full stop do not recommend you doing it. The article later says, quote, in 2012, a maximum security facility in Arizona had two outbreaks of botulism, an illness caused by spoiled foods that can lead to (laughs) paralysis or death. Prison staff suspected the flare-up was the result of a bad batch of alcohol and the substance was sent off to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention for Analysis. End quote for a second. This is where it gets interesting. We quote, the CDC testing traced the problem back to a baked potato that had been smuggled out of the cafeteria and stored for several weeks before being used as an ingredient in the batch. Since the incident, mashed potatoes have been struck from the menu. End quote. Interestingly, and perhaps evidently, Alcatraz itself would have been incredibly hard to pull off a successful fermentation. Minus the glue concoction made by the Alcatraz inmates that I saw on the tour, I only found one very obscure New York Times article published in 1902. Remember, this is still when it was a military prison, but it still applies to what we're talking about. Prisoners die from drink. Five men confined on Alcatraz Island, California, made a beverage of wood alcohol. Two dead. San Francisco, January 2nd. Five of the military prisoners at Alcatraz Island drank a beverage which wood alcohol formed the principal part. The five who drank the stuff were prison trustees and were employed as cooks. Captain Tuller, commander of the post, has not been able to learn where they obtained the alcohol. Absolutely freaking fascinating. Fermentation permeates every level of our society to some surprising degree. Let's finish up with the final years of Alcatraz and the years that followed its closure. On March 21st, 1963, Alcatraz closed at 29 years of operation as a federal prison. It really becomes pretty obvious why when you look at, among other things, but if you look at the cost required to keep the still very small prison running. Alcatraz was nearly three times more expensive to operate than any other federal prison. (laughs) And this really didn't make sense given the number of prisoners. Additionally, at the time, the facilities were in desperate need of repair that many taxpayers just were not willing to pay. After its close, most were at a loss with what to do. Briefly after its closure in 1969, a group of Native Americans led by Mohawk activist Richard Oakes arrived on Alcatraz Island and claimed the land on behalf of, quote, Indians of all tribes. The hope was to establish a university and a museum on the island. They were removed by the order of the president two years later in 1971. After this, a dizzying amount of suggestions were put forth. A hotel was considered. Plans for a West Coast Statue of Liberty were considered. Put forth a shopping mall was considered. And many, many more, um, I'll say, interesting ideas. But in the end, in 1972, Congress created the Golden Gate National Recreation Area, and Alcatraz Island was included as part of the new National Park Service unit. One year later, Alcatraz was open to the public. Today, more than 
a million people pay to visit The Rock each year, which would have absolutely stunned previous Alcatraz inmates who definitely would not have paid to be there, namely El Capone, Machine Gun Kelly, and the Birdman of Alcatraz. I watch as the grim rock island fades into the fog. The silence on the boat is noticeable as I look down at my cold beer, grateful that glue and hand sanitizer were left out of its ingredient list. I want to personally thank you for listening to the Beer Nomad podcast. It helps us grow tremendously if you rate, review, and subscribe. Additionally, you can reach out with any further questions. I'm happy to answer them at my Instagram at the Beer Nomad Van. That is it for this week. Thank you. Genuinely, again, drink good beer and be good to each other. Cheers. Cheers.